Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning on this Palm Sunday? We'll be taking a break from our normal series in James and we'll be looking today at the greater sanctuary that is available in Jesus Christ. As we mentioned, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, um, that today is the day that we celebrate that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. He came in that knowing that, that he would be going to the cross. And of course, next week we'll celebrate that he, it doesn't, the story doesn't end at the cross, but it ends at the empty tomb. And we give praise and we give glory to that. And it's through that that the writer of Hebrews is looking back to and writing about the access that we have to God because of Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. That indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part of the high, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods, drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, which the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his finished work on the cross, and thank you that through him we have entrance into your presence. Lord, we ask today that as we quiet our hearts here and our minds, that you would meet with us, that you would share from us your word, from your word, exactly what you want us to learn today, that you would show us there is a better sanctuary, There's a better way, and his name is Jesus. Lord, for one who hears these things today, who doesn't know you as Savior, would you convict them of their sin? Would you show them eternal life available through him? Lord, for those who are here who have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, would you show us that in him we can live in a way that honors you, that glorifies you, that reflects you to a a world around us? Most of all, Lord, would you change us? 
Would you help us not to be satisfied with who we are, but would you make us more and more like yourself? In your name we pray. Amen. Sometimes in life, the things that we have or the things that we experience do so, we experience them in such a way that it points us ahead to something that one day will be far better. The teenager with his learner's permit is having his attention drawn to a day that in the future, when after careful study and practice, he will earn his driver's license. The t-ball player is looking ahead to the day that that she will smack a softball that came flying out of an opposing pitcher's hand. Or the intern who looks ahead to a day when he might be made a full-fledged partner of the business even as he gets a taste of what that business is like in his internship. And these things that we experience in the present, that that point us ahead to the future, they don't make the present unbearable or useless or pointless but they do serve to enhance that there is a coming change that is ahead. What's to come is exalted by what is the present reality. And just as that's true in our physical world, it's also true in the spiritual world that this is what the writer of Hebrews talks about here. You see, for hundreds of years, God's people, Israel, came to God under his laws of sacrifice and under his laws of worship. And these laws that God imposed, they highlighted man's sinfulness and his need of a savior. They very pointedly showed that man could not earn his way to God and that there was always a price for sin. But do you realize that year after year after year, no one could change the system. But one day, that all changed. And on that day that we call Palm Sunday, the one who was about to bring about something far greater rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That one is the Son of God, Jesus himself. He is the promised Messiah. He is the creator, the redeemer, and king. Jesus came, as he said in his own words, to fulfill the law of God, not to destroy it. He came to meet man's need, not to defer it. He came to establish a new, eternal, and better covenant between God and man. He came to rescue the souls of men. And the writer of Hebrews, as you read this book, is consumed with showing one major theme again and again. So if I can very simply give you a theme for Hebrews, Jesus is better. He is better than any leader who came before him. He is better than any system that existed before him. And he is better than any other object of your faith or thing that you may give your life to. Jesus is better. So it is the book of Hebrews to which we will look over the next couple weeks and see exactly what Jesus has done for us through his death and through his resurrection. 
And today, here in, in Hebrews chapter 9, in the first 14 verses, we take a look at the greater sanctuary that Jesus has established for us. Jesus, when he came to earth, came at a time when the old covenant was still in place and still active. Daily sacrifices were still being offered in the temple. The high priest was still carrying out the atonement for the nation. But Jesus didn't come to let it all stay the same. He came to advance this beyond this, and to open access to God for all. And what we see here in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, is that because the things of the first covenant only foreshadowed eternal salvation, we must look to Jesus for our entrance into the presence of God. The things that that you see throughout the Old Testament, the the laws of God, the, the good things that God established, were but a shadow, they, they were but, but a representation. We'll read later on that they're just symbolic of what was to come, a far greater and more permanent access to God. And that is through Jesus Christ. So let's look at these things. There's just two things really to examine here that the writer gives us. He, he takes, first of all, that which was experienced under the old covenant, and he gives us the whole picture of that and what it was and what it could or could not do. And then he compares or contrasts that even with Jesus and what he has done for us. So we look, first of all, in the first 10 verses at really what is the earthly sanctuary that is found here, in the, and you find it in the Old Testament, but the writer here has, has given us uh, some illustration of that. When we talk about the earthly sanctuary, we see in the first five verses of chapter 9 the, the construction of the sanctuary. You see, the first covenant that God made with his people was indisputably of divine origin. When, when Moses went up to the mount there in, in Exodus, and God made a covenant with his people, and they said, whatever you say, we will do, which by the way, they, they didn't always do that, you know. Um, we see this covenant that, that, that is unfolded and unpacked there throughout the books of the Old Testament. And it's understandable that sometimes we look at this covenant. I mean, have you ever engaged in a Bible reading plan and it really bogged down, you know, Genesis, Exodus, they're flying along, and then you hit Leviticus, right? And it's like your wheels are just stuck in the mud. And, and sometimes we look at this, and we look at the laws, and we look at the things that they were required to do, and, 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 and we miss the message of what, what's being said. And, and sometimes we look at it, man, this seems really pointless. This seems worthless. This seems hopeless, right? But see, nothing God sets forth is so. Now, certainly, the old covenant has its limitations. But that's how God set it up. It was never meant to save anyone eternally from their sin. Hebrews, as we said, shows us over and over again that that Jesus is better. But, But understand that it does not show us Jesus is better by putting down the things that have come before. Right? Now, we've all met somebody like that in our lives, who, who they spend their whole life making themselves look better by putting other people down. You know, they try to stand on top of other people, and, and so that comes to our mind, but that's not what the writer of Hebrews does here. He doesn't say that this is a bad thing, and so therefore Jesus is better. No, no, he indeed exalts the leaders, the people, the, the system. He says this is you know, who God set up and what he is, and by doing so, exalts Jesus all the more by saying, as good as this is, Jesus is better. He's greater. He's eternal. No, this first covenant that God established as his people was a temporary covenant. 
never meant to save people from their sin because indeed it, it could not. And so what's described here is, is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle and its prescribed worship exalt God and they point the way to Jesus Christ. And, and it necessarily leaves man longing for the finished work of the Messiah. And we will see that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is greater than the establishment of a new covenant in the new sanctuary of the eternal God. But let us first observe the old. When God establishes covenant with his people, it says in verse nine, or chapter, one, chapter 9, verse 1, that indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. When God established that covenant, he gave specific instructions on how he was to be worshipped. And the place that he established to be worshipped was known as the tabernacle. It was a portable structure which God's people carried with them all through the wilderness and into the promised land. They worshiped God there year after year after year. Eventually, that tabernacle would be replaced. Solomon would build the temple. That temple would be destroyed when Jerusalem was raided and then rebuilt later on, but when, before the time of Nehemiah. But here we are talking about the writers talking about the tabernacle as that that is the building that was specifically commanded to be built by God. And do you realize that in Scripture there are somewhere around fifty chapters devoted to the tabernacle and its worship? It's truly an important part of Israel's life. It, it represented the presence of God among His people, because it was where one came to follow God's commandments. For worship. So everything there, though everything was temporal, everything had an eternal meaning. I'm going to give you this. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it, but this is a representation of what the tabernacle would have looked like, just to give you some frame of reference. This comes from, um, if, you're for, want, if you're familiar with the ESV study Bible, this is a chart that they have inside that Bible. The tabernacle structure was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet tall. And it was divided into two main sections. The first section is, is called the holy place. Or, or it says here in our passage in verse 2, the first part. Or the first, and sometimes it's also called what we have our, where we have our title for our message today, the sanctuary. It was here that in this first sanctuary, this first part, the, the holy place, that one would find pieces of furniture that were prescribed by God. And the, the author of Hebrews mentions them here. He mentions the golden lampstand that, that, that gave light to the tabernacle. The tabernacle didn't have any windows. That was the only way that the light came. The, ta- the, the, the lampstand gave light by wicks that were in oil there on, in, the, in the different sections of it. Also present was a table of showbread. On this table, there were 12 loaves of bread. Those 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was made of wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And and every Sabbath, 12 fresh loaves of bread were placed on the table according to God's command. At the end of the week, the priests were allowed to eat those 12 loaves, but they could only do so within the holy place. This bread was a reminder of God's presence sustaining his people. Jesus, when he was in his ministry in John chapter 6, referred to himself as the bread of life. In verse 4, there's another 
peace that's mentioned, though uh, it's, it's mentioned in conjunction with the most holy place because it had much to do with that. It was actually in that first section of the tabernacle. It's the golden censer, the, the, the altar of incense. This altar had much to do with that most holy place because it was on that altar that the priest would burn incense to God. And it was placed near this curtain or this veil that separated the holy place from the second part of the tabernacle, which is the most holy place. And the author of Hebrews describes that. That there was indeed a veil or a curtain that separated the parts of the tabernacle. And so the last third of the tabernacle is actually a, a, a perfect cube. It's, it's 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall and 15 feet long. And that is known as the most holy place. And there was only one piece of furniture you found inside the most holy place, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark were several significant items from Israel's journey to the promised land. That They had a pot that contained manna that was God's miraculous provision of food for his people. They had the budding rod of Aaron that was a testament of whom God had selected as the high priest. And then, of course, it contained the tablets of stone on which were written the Ten Commandments representing the law of God that he had given them. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was this most important part was the mercy seat overshadowed by the two angels. And it was here on the mercy seat that the atonement for the sins of the nation was made each year. Understand that God had fellowship with his people via the blood of a goat that was sprinkled here every year. And these things, here in verse, these first five verses that, that are described... They all have one major flaw. Every single one of them, though specifically given by God how they were to be built, were in the end built by the hands of man. And so because of this, they're going to wear out. They're going to need repair. They're going to have problems over the years. They're going to need constant care and upkeep for the buildings and the pieces of furniture. And just as these actual pieces were man-made and therefore temporal, that prescribed work that God had given could only go so far and could only last for so long. So in the first five verses here, we've seen the pieces. And I think it's interesting, you know, the author says of these things we cannot speak in detail. There is indeed a lot of detail that we could go into and, and further see those things. And you can read those in Exodus and other places about the tabernacle. But the author continues on now to look at the service that was rendered there at the tabernacle. In verse 6, now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Realize that the work of the tabernacle never ceased. There was always something going on there. Why? Because it's the only place that one could come to be right with God, to, be, to, to offer the sacrifices, to, to seek the atonement for sin. So therefore, there was always work to be done on behalf of the people. And not to mention that they had to refresh the oils, the oil in the lamps, or to, to put out the showbread, or, or other items that needed to be attended to in the tabernacle. And whenever an Israelite sinned, 
there was an interruption of his fellowship with God. For God is holy and he cannot tolerate sin. And so, God provided a way in his law for man to atone for his sins. And God's very specific about that. We mentioned the book of Leviticus a minute ago. If you've read through it, you found out, yeah, God's very specific about that, right? And he tells them, for this sin, it's this sacrifice, it's this atonement, it's this is what you have to do. You have to go and, and offer this. And these sacrifices were not a removal of their sins, but a covering, a payment made for their sins. Because sin always has a price. And so, in the holy place, that first part of the tabernacle, and in the outer courtyard, the work went on year-round. The priests would, would meet the people there and help them to come back to God. And, and can you just imagine with me for just a minute that you as an Israelite have, have engaged in the worship of God in this way? That what God says we do, and so you sin, and, and you know what you've done, and it's wrong, and, and you, you know what the law of God says, so you go to the, the tabernacle, and you bring your, your, your sacrifice, and you offer it to God, and on the way back to your tent, you sin again. So what do you have to do? Right? I mean, how frustrating would that be? Right? How important the picture of what sin actually is. Now let's take it a step further. Because how many of us have ever sinned and not realized we had done wrong? Because we are blinded to our own sin. That we've, we've hurt someone else, that we've done something that, that we didn't know about. And well, now what do you do, right? And, and we are so hardwired to sin that we don't always see it the way we're supposed to see it. Well, God provided every year a way for the sins of the nation to be atoned for, even those that, that people were ignorant of. This day was known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. On this day, the high priest would don the elaborate robes and pieces of his prescribed garments, and in the beginning of the day would begin sacrificing for himself and the people in preparation for that sacrifice of the nation. Actually, it's, it's very likely that by the time he's reached the, the atonement that he has sacrificed 22 different types of animals participated in these things. Why did he have to do this? Because he was a man just like anyone else. And if he was going to represent the people before God, then he had to have the sins of his own self paid for. He needed to make sure that he was right with God so he could intercede on behalf of God's people. If the high priest entered into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat sat unprepared, he would be struck down by God. So the priest... Would then, at the, before the, the offering would take place for the nation, would offer up a bull purchased with his own money to pay for his sin, and then he would be given two goats. And by lot, one goat was chosen for the Lord, and one goat was chosen as a scapegoat. And the goat that was chosen for the atonement would be slaughtered, and the blood would be taken by the high priest into the most holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the nation. The other goat would be released into the wilderness 
symbolically representing the conscience of man being satisfied after God's justice being satisfied by the sacrifice of the first goat. This was an enormous day in the life of the Jews because it was on that day that all release for sin was found year after year after year. And in this, we see, though beautiful and, and, and amazing the system is, it's a very limited system. It, it's one that doesn't truly bring us into the presence of God. And so, the third thing we see, we, we see not only the, the, the building, the construction of the tabernacle and the services that are offered, but we see that, that this earthly sanctuary really is limited. While the tabernacle and the temple stood as the way to God, there are some things that we must recognize that are true. I mean, and again, this is not to say it's a bad or a pointless system. In fact, this does exactly what God wanted it to do. It showed the inability of man to come to God on his own. It pointed the way to the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It was very limited in that it offered people no direct access to God. It says here in verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Who could enter the most holy place and into the presence of God but one man, the high priest? And how many times a year did he enter there? One time. One man, one time a year, entered the presence of God to make atonement for the people. The people, the, 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 the nation, do you realize they could come there only to certain parts of the tabernacle? They, if you were just a, you know, to say maybe an average run-of-the-mill Israelite, you know, you weren't a Levite, you weren't a priest, you could not even go into the tabernacle, the, the, the holy place. Only the priest could do that. Only the priest could help with certain things. So there was no ability for one to come into the presence of God. The curtain that stood between the two sections of the tabernacle physically reminded the people of this. that They were separated from God that it was not yet opened, that there had to be someone else who could give them access to God. And every year they depended on that high priest to go in for them. And every year, you know, can you imagine, they hoped that, that he had done what he was supposed to do to represent them before God. So because there was no direct access to God, there was secondly, we see that the cleansing that was found here was never complete. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The sacrifices that God commanded offered but temporary relief from, from sin's guilt. Why not? Why could they not offer full relief? Well, when did you offer the sacrifice? After you had sinned. 
And that sacrifice that you made did nothing for the sin that you were going to commit the next day. It only paid the price of the sin that you had come to, to, to take care of. That's why there's no relief. There's no true uh, peace with God. The guilt was never fully removed from the conscience of the worshiper. And so the writer of Hebrews says that this old system is symbolic. That is, it's a comparison of what's to come. It's a picture. Actually, the word that's translated there at the end of verse 9 as symbolic is the same word that's translated parable. It's something that is laid down beside something else to, to give you a comparison. And so the writer says that the things of the tabernacle are laid down next to the work of Jesus Christ to help us understand what he has done. Everything in the old sanctuary and in the old way of coming to God is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And third, this system is limited because this system of laws and sacrifices had much to do with the temporary outward things. Verse 10, concerned only with, the, with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. God had much to say about food and drinks about washings and and other laws, but these things were temporary and and not eternal. They were instituted long after the beginning of human history, and they ended long before the end of human history. They were present until a full and final correction could be made. That's that word there, reformation, at the end of verse 10. It's the idea of a full and final correction. That reformation was found in Jesus Christ. He came to establish the new covenant. He came to show us the heavenly, perfect sanctuary. He came to make us right with God. And we sit here, maybe for just a minute, and we think, man, how did anyone then ever go to heaven before Jesus Christ? The same way anyone else does, through faith in God. We read that over and over in the Old you know, we read about the Old Testament saints, that obviously they are in heaven, obviously their sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, but they had to have faith in God, not in these temporary things. And now, having shown us the shadow of things past, the writer points us to the present, to the work of Jesus Christ, and we see the heavenly sanctuary. And we take it just as we did the other one. We see its construction in verse 11. But Christ came. And and again, can we never highlight enough this, this idea of contrast? Here is what an old one looked like. Here's what the old one could or couldn't do. But Jesus Christ. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He came not as another high priest in the current system, but as the high priest bringing in the new covenant. He ministers not from the tabernacle made by human hands, but that which is made by God, far greater and far more perfect. It is perfect. He ministers in heaven itself, a place of perfection and in the full presence of God. 
And Jesus Christ could enter into the full presence of God as the perfect sinless Son of God. No man could ever do that. No man ever on his own can come before God. What did the priest have to do to even enter the Holy of Holies? He had to make sure he was right with God. And so, it's in its construction, the sanctuary of heaven, the, the, the tabernacle of, 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 of God himself, is superior in every way. It doesn't wear out. It's perfect. It's not affected by sinful, fallen man. And from this greater tabernacle, Jesus has done a greater service. We read in verse 12, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Every year, the high priest offered sacrifices before entering the most holy place. Every year, the people offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And every year, the high priest, who was just like one of them, did the exact same things. Every year, he came in after he had cleansed himself. Not Jesus Christ. He did not enter the Holy of Holies. He did not enter the presence of God on the basis of an animal or anyone else. But it says he came, what? With his own blood. He entered not to sprinkle the mercy seat with temporal, with the blood of temporal animals, only to do it again next year. He entered by his own blood and one time was enough. He says, the writer says, he entered the most holy place once for all. His blood was sufficient for him to enter in. And more than that, his blood is sufficient for all who trust in him to enter. He gives access to God the Father. And he needed only do it once. And so the tabernacle of earth is constructed, it it was temporary. The, The services that were rendered there were very limited. And so the tabernacle of heaven, the greater sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary that was constructed is, is far greater. It's perfect. It's holy. It's in the presence of God. It was the services that were there are then not limited, but limitless. The writer continues on. He says in verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats... And the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The old covenant was weak and imperfect because it never altered one's eternal state. Only faith in God could do that. But it was effective for what it was meant to do. It symbolized externally the cleansing of sin. Do you understand that the worship of God at the tabernacle was a bloody worship? It showed very vividly that there was a price that had to be paid for one to be made clean. That there was a sacrifice required for sin. And it did it extremely well. 
And here is the argument of the greater sanctuary and the greater work of God. The writer has not put down what is done before. He has shown how effective it is and therefore will argue from what is good to what is greater. That is Jesus. If the work under the old covenant was effective, which it was, the writer says, that the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Was the, were the, was the ends that, 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 that they wanted to be clean, to be, have their sins covered, was that found in the old covenant? Absolutely it was. It was effective in what it, what it did. If the work of the covenant was effective, how much greater and how much more effective is Jesus Christ's work? If the covenant before cleansed one externally, the covenant cleanses one now fully and completely. In Jesus Christ, there is a greater sacrifice. Jesus rode in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. Not to offer a goat, but to offer himself. And he did not come as a priest from the line of Aaron. Indeed, he was not even a Levite. But as the writer of Hebrews tells us, referenced in Genesis, he came as one from the order of Melchizedek, the king priest. You see, all throughout Israel's history, the office of the king and the office of the priest, they were separate. One, one was there to rule, and it happened in 1 Samuel 8 when they called for a king, and one was there to lead the worship, to lead the people to God, not in Jesus Christ. He is one and the same. He is not only the king, but he is also the priest. He is not only the one who rules, but he is the one who brings us to God. He came not to stave off the wrath of God, but to endure it. There's a great difference. There's a great difference between covering the sin of the wrath of God and, and what Jesus did on the cross, enduring the wrath of God on sin. He came not to satiate your conscience of guilt, but to free it from guilt. This is the better sanctuary. This is the better sacrifice. This is the way to God. And this is what you and I can enjoy in Jesus Christ today. Those who cried Hosanna on that day did not fully grasp what was about to happen. This was the Lamb of God. And as John cried out in John chapter 1, who takes away the sin of the world. We are privileged to have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. He is in every way superior to the law. Because he is the fulfillment of all things that God set forth. He is our life. He is our hope. He is our joy. So let us celebrate our King today and let us thank Him for His wondrous work and see that because of the, the things of the first covenant only foreshadowed eternal salvation, we must look to Jesus for our entrance into the presence of God. Jesus is better. He is better than your sin. He is better than your self-efforts 
or anything that you think you need to be happy or anything you think you need to feel right with God. He is the answer to the question long raised by the old covenant. Who can wash away sin? Because the blood of bulls and goats never washed away sin. Jesus does. He came to give victory to you, to give full and final victory. And in him, you can be made complete. And in him, you can live for eternity in his incredible, to to the incredible glory, honor, and praise of him. And so I implore you to trust him today. To give up your self-efforts and to rest completely in him. There is no peace outside of Jesus Christ alone. And if you do trust him, exalt him. Recognize his claim on your life and live endlessly for him in his power. Praise him for his greatness and his goodness and give his hope to others through his glorious gospel. Would you turn back one chapter with me to Hebrews chapter 8? I was reading this this morning in my own devotions and just was, again, struck how much it tied into what we were looking at today. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. What the author is saying here is that Jesus is the minister or the servant of the true tabernacle in the presence of God. And he is seated in the heavens. His work is complete. And you and I, through his finished work, can experience a taste of heaven on earth. That comes through a relationship with him. That comes through salvation found in Jesus Christ. But it goes further than that. You and I, if you know the Lord is your Savior, can live in such a way that we reflect heaven in the earth we live in here. The author of Hebrews, throughout Hebrews, is consumed with with Jesus and heaven. Like the, The picture of Jesus is not far separated from him being in the heavens. And so those who follow Jesus Christ live and should be living in such a way that we reflect heavenly thinking because we think like Christ to others, that we live in such a way. Jesus is better, and he is ours. He's available to each and every human being. He, is, he, he, he created you, he loves you, and he wants to have a relationship with you. And Christian, he wants you to serve him. He wants you to live for him. He wants you to forsake your sin, to become more like him every day, to give yourself wholeheartedly to him, to not live apathetically, but all in. And so today, as we reflect on who God is and what he's done, may he work in our hearts to whatever that next step is, whether it's to to trust him as our Savior or to 
to return to him, to come back to him, to get rid of whatever it is in our life he's been working on and, and take the next step spiritually that we can live for his honor and glory. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Lord, thank you that these aren't just words on a page, but they are the living word of the living God. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for not leaving us without hope. But thank you for convicting us, for ministering to us. Lord, thank you for Jesus who has opened the way to a better sanctuary. Who has torn down the veil and given us access to the presence of God. Lord, we ask that you would convict us, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would give us the courage to make things right with you, that you would fill our hearts with a longing to live for you each and every day. We ask that you would be with us now as we prepare to go home, to lunch, to whatever it is we have this afternoon, that you would continue to to use your word in our hearts, to resonate within us the things that we need to change. Would you do your work? Bring us back tonight to worship you, to your honor, your glory, your name we pray, amen.